We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tourism is rebounding, and the issues about management continue to be front and center. We learn more about how the Hawaii Tourism Authority is tracking the recreational areas where visitors and residents are flocking as the pandemic restrictions are being relaxed. We talked to Jennifer Chun, the director of HTA's Tourism Research, about a contract with Uber Media. It's to collect geolocation data from your cell phones. HTA just began reporting the data on its website. Our data that we have runs from January 2019. And one of the big reasons why we wanted to collect geolocation data is to see how all our state resources and our county resources are being used. So we've been working with the Department of Land and Natural Resources to put together a list of um, points of interest or locations um, for parks and trail systems and also for county parks and trails and beaches to try and see how these assets are being utilized. And we're looking at... um, like I said, geolocation data, which comes from cell phones. And this comes from your app data. So if somebody is doing an Instagram post or Facebook or they're using Yelp, usually their location services data are on. And so it's collecting it. So it's this big passive survey. So it's not being used as counts. But it's kind of looking at, you know, how many residents, how many visitor devices are being represented at any given time for a point of interest. So not everybody is counted. No, not everybody is counted. And that's same for a survey is that we use a, you know, a sample of people. And, of course, some people don't have location services on. Some people, especially our international visitors, might not have cellular service, but they do have um, public Wi-Fi. So we, given the, the number of devices are in the thousands of devices every month, even now while we're not in, you know, back to 2019 levels exactly, it's still a lot of devices that are popping up. So it brings in our visitor statistics. It also brings in our lodging data with hotel, timeshare, and vacation rental data, and also this Uber Media um, geolocation data. And so by seeing all of that data in one place, it kind of gives you an idea of what is happening. And one of the things that's important to note is that Hawaii measures the device visits differently than other destinations. We are actually looking at every time a device is seen. So if somebody goes to, you know, Lanikai Beach five times during their visit, it's going to show as five. And if a resident goes every day, it's going to show as 30 for a given month. So we want to know who's really utilizing, not just how often people are going. For other destinations, they only usually count one time per point of interest, and then they're more interested in marketing versus this is a tool we're using to manage our destination versus, you know, just kind of push out the source market. So for an example, we could see how many visitors go to Diamond Head. Well, it's not how many. It's the share of visitors. So if we looked on Oahu and we clicked on the Diamond Head location, it'll say the share of overall pings or devices seen for Oahu, how many of those went to Diamond Head. And the neat thing about the Symphony dashboard, it also gives you cross-visitation. So if you were looking at that, it also tells you what share of those Diamond Head visitors also go to other points of interest on Oahu and other points of interest within the rest of the state. And we have separate dashboards for those points of interest for visitors and also Hawaii residents. And the Hawaii residents are pretty neat because you can choose which county. So in the past, we've never really looked at inter-island travel. But, you know, if I wanted to look for, you know, the island of Kauai and what points of interest are popular for um, residents for um, Hawaii County, you know, I could do that. And so that's kind of interesting, too. And so this gives all of our stakeholders some added insight to the market, not just visitors, but also residents from their island and across the state. So you could see where the use of, I don't know, let's say Kailua Beach Park 
is predominantly locals or predominantly visitors? Correct. You, you could um, see that information by looking at the, the dashboards. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, it's not every single device, so it's not a count, but it's like you said, it's a mix. So, for example, Kailua Town and um, Kailua Beach, that's mostly residents still, um, even though sometimes it feels like there are more visitors than residents. And I know you say that, you know, we're not using it to market, but it is curious. You you have also included, like, shopping centers. Right. And part of the reason why we included the shopping centers is not so much to gauge traffic at the shopping center, but more about the traffic around, you know, so the roads and everything that lead up to the shopping centers and uh, taking a look at that, especially when there are special events, because this is the next phase that we haven't implemented yet, but we're, we're eventually going to try and look to see, you know, specific dates and times. So if there's some kind of um, event that Hawaii Tourism Authority or the counties are sponsoring, um, we can see that happening. But this, like I said, the shopping centers are not so much about retail participation as much as the, how the traffic flows from one point of interest to another. So this next phase then will be what, finer data points? We already have the data, but we just need to visualize it. And so that's what the tourism economics team is working on right now. They're our vendor for this project. There's other data that are also being incorporated. So that's part of the second phase, and there's more phases beyond that, too. (laughs) Now, there is some thought that you could use the technology for something like geofencing, you know, if you want to keep people out of private property in in areas that are, you know, kapu, that you could somehow send up, you know, a message saying, no, you know, you're not allowed here. (laughs) Go back. Yes, I believe that technology is available. However, we don't have a contract for that. That's more of beacon technology where it senses your device and then it pushes a message to you. We have um, geofenced some kapu areas um, so that we can find out whether or not people are going in and whether or not those are visitors and where those visitors might be from, whether they're U.S. visitors or international visitors or whether they're residents um, going into those kapu areas. We've been hearing from Jennifer Chun, Director of Tourism Research for the Hawaii Tourism Authority, about geolocation data currently being tracked from visitors and residents. Chun says it's her plan to begin sharing additional data with the counties. Head to our website to find the links to the latest geolocation report and the symphony dashboard just released last week. There's been lots of talk about the need for affordable housing as many units are taken out of the pool for vacation rentals. And while the issue has been on the radar of lawmakers for years, what's it going to take to build new inventory? HBR's Casey Harlow has been tracking this and joins us now. Good morning. Morning. So, you know, we did hear a lot of talk about this a couple of sessions ago. Uh, You know, uh, I think Stanley Chang went to Singapore with the group and there was talk about the Singaporean model. So what's the latest? Uh, Yeah. So, well, COVID happened, and so that kind of took a backseat to a lot of uh, other issues that face uh, residents here in the state as well. Uh, Stanley Chang is still pursuing uh, the Singaporean model for uh, building more affordable housing units and building more inventory on uh, less land. And uh, he's actually holding a webinar next month on August 12th uh, discussing that as well. So hopefully we'll see something again uh, in the next session as well regarding affordable housing. But yeah, affordable housing is uh, tied to a lot of issues. It's tied to the monster home debate. It's tied to the cost of living debate. It's caught and uh, even the out migration of residents. Um, And that's one thing that uh, came up very clear to me within the last uh, few stories that I have done uh, on these various issues as well. But we're just not building enough. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of um, finger pointing as saying that affordable, more affordable housing would be able to address some of these issues. And there are challenges to uh, building affordable housing. Um, it comes down to 
two different, three things. It comes down to infrastructure, uh, building infrastructure. It comes down to uh, the land and it comes down to uh, residents as well. And I spoke to uh, Phil Garboden, uh, who is an associate professor over at UH Manoa's Department of Urban and Regional Planning. Is he he focuses specifically on affordable housing, and he kind of takes me through, you know, how we can solve this very plainly. You know, it's using urbanized areas. So what's already built, he doesn't talk about a green space at all. You have to build a lot, and you have to keep building a lot. And to be clear, I don't think you need to do any greenfield development here. You just need to take the existing urbanized environment and add more housing to it. And if you keep doing that, and you do that a lot for long enough, you're going to see overall beneficial aspects on housing prices. And, yeah, uh, easier said than done, obviously. Yeah, this whole density thing. I mean, the, the, that's essentially what he's saying, increase the density. Yeah, exactly. And so I also spoke to uh, Denise Iseri Matsubara, who's the executive director of the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation over at DBED. And they uh, coordinate things with developers, also the Hawaii Public Housing Authority and the HCDA, the Hawaii Community Development Authority as well. And it all, again, it kind of all comes down to those three challenges of infrastructure, uh, land use, and also residents. Uh, but infrastructure was like a big thing that was commonly uh, told to me because uh, we have an aging infrastructure. And in order to support more density in these urban areas, you definitely need to build that out so it can support such a thing. And she also said, because of this, building affordable isn't really affordable. And this is what she had to say about infrastructure. Infrastructure is the foundation. You can't even begin to do affordable housing without the infrastructure needed. So government needs to invest in the roads, water, sewer, drainage system, because these costs are huge. We're talking about hundreds of millions, up to a billion in need. How to pay for it is an issue. If government doesn't pay for it, it's likely to be passed on to the buyer, which ultimately raises the cost of housing. And she also pointed out that um... You know, there have been uh, projects where or development projects where it was supposed to have a lot more uh, units, but because of infrastructure, they had to scale that back. Well, we did see the city uh, do all the improvements with the sewer, uh, you know, the capacity uh, building with that, uh, you know, along Kaka'ako. Uh, and uh, I know the Board of Water Supply is talking about the need to upgrade their systems as well. Right. Uh, so uh, I took a more uh, statewide approach to this because, yes, there are ish there are uh, developments happening here on Oahu. But also, like, in order to develop affordable housing, you have to uh, expand that beyond Oahu. Right. You have to expand that to Maui, where there's been projects that have been, you know, um, opposed to by residents. And uh, again, it kind of comes down to the not in what Isari Matsubara uh, says, not in my backyard or NIMBYism. And a good example of that happened uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a year ago or a couple of years ago in Kailua, uh, where there was a proposed development for affordable housing there. Yeah, uh, lots of concern uh, all around uh, just because they, yeah, we need more and people need to be open to allow these things to happen in their neighborhood. Right. And uh, Garboden uh, kind of likened uh, this uh, to the coronavirus pan, uh, pandemic, uh, saying that if this is a crisis, we should actually spend time to address this crisis. If it's a crisis and everyone says it's a crisis, then we need to respond financially the way you respond to crises, right? Which federal government responded to COVID crisis by sending out billions and billions of dollars. And that's sort of the mentality we need to have here if we want to actually make a dent in this situation. Right. We're in a crisis mode. Let's let's do something. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. That was HBR's Casey Harlow. Find his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Thank you. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. 
For today's quiz, we're talking about a special show, One Night Only. On a warm summer night, an otherwise humble cactus vine will be transformed by the bloom of a beautiful white flower. That's right, we're talking about the night-blooming cirrus, which grows throughout the tropical regions of the world. Uh, Late in the summer, the cactus will produce an equally stunning fruit, the pitaya, or dragon fruit. But today, we're all about the blooms. The flowers of some of these species last for a single night. They have one chance to attract nocturnal pollinators, such as moths and bats. The spectacular floral showcase has earned the night-blooming cirrus many names, including La Dama de Noche, the Cinderella plant, and the moonflower. But we have our own name for this plant in the islands, named for one particularly storied specimen. For today's quiz, we want to know the Hawaiian name for the night-blooming cirrus. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. The Hawaiian Sovereignty Movement lost one of its most influential leaders this weekend. Haunani K. Trask was a longtime University of Hawaii at Manoa educator and the first director of what is now known as the Kamaka Ku'okalani Center for Hawaiian Studies. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Noelani Goodyear Ka'opua, a political science professor at UH and a former student of Trask. I think that her impact and her legacy will continue to grow. And we will continue to see the ways that she has impacted Hawaii. Her scholarship, her work as a public intellectual, as an activist, highlighted the importance of land and getting land back to Hawaiians as part of the restitution and and justice, you know, for the historical and ongoing wrongs that have been committed. And so at this moment, you know, that's sort of a trending hashtag on social media is land back. And this is something that Honanike was saying from the 70s onward, that land and restoring a land base to the Native Hawaiian people is absolutely necessary to right historical wrongs that continue to have huge and detrimental impacts on our people to today. You know, she was someone who was talking about the so-called ceded lands, the Hawaiian national land base that was illegally seized from the Hawaiian kingdom and from Lili'okalani from the early 80s. I think one of the things that she would also emphasize is that she has been a hugely impactful and a great leader, but she never wanted to claim a position that was only for herself. She was always about this is a collect this has to be a collective movement. You know, she was always about lifting up other people, about other women leaders in particular and students. And then I think the third thing that I would maybe add to this is the work that she's done to transform education and particularly higher education in Hawaii. You know, when she came to the university as a faculty member after having graduated with her PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, there were, you could count the number of Native Hawaiian faculty on one hand, on less than one hand. And she took it upon herself to make sure that there was going to be space at the University of Hawaii for Hawaiian students, for Hawaiian faculty, for Hawaiian knowledge. And we wouldn't have a Center for Hawaiian Studies today 
if it wasn't for her. We wouldn't have Kanaka scholars, Native Hawaiian scholars in various fields. Her reach and impact in terms of Hawaiian scholarship and education has been vast. She was a founding member of the Kamakakuo Kalani Center for Hawaiian Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where she served as its director for almost 10 years. Do you think that her experience in college in Chicago and later in Wisconsin, do you think that helped shape her political views, which then influenced her desire to help establish a school dedicated to Hawaiian studies? It absolutely impacted her. I think before even that, though, you know, her mother was a huge impact on her. Her mother was a teacher, a public school teacher who raised her children to value education from the very beginning. Her father was an attorney. Honanike shared about how he would have them recite his oral arguments as training. The time that she spent in Madison was particularly formative because it was just at the tail end right, of the Vietnam War. She was involved in anti-war organizing. She was involved in supporting the movement to bring feminist education, women's studies education into universities, as well as supporting in solidarity the move to bring African-American studies into the university. So she was in Madison at a time where, you know, social movements were challenging white supremacy within within universities. So I certainly think that when she came back to Hawaii, you know, she became involved in movements that were going on here. And she also was one of those folks who, you know, a key leader who connected those Hawaiian movements with making change within the university because she saw education as a vehicle for remedying, you know, a few generations worth of of miseducation and, and of hiding the truth from young people of Hawaii. And she wanted to make sure people had access to a much more accurate history and reading and analysis of what was happening in in the moment. You've touched on how she came from a politically active family. She, you, you've touched on how her mom was a, a big influence on her. Her younger sister, Mililani, is a leader in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. It seems like Hawaii's sovereignty movement is unique in that Many of its leaders and influential pillars are women. Why do you think this is? And do you think this is something that will continue into the future? I think it has to do with the fact that women have always been powerful and respected within Hawaiian culture. You know, that we come from a people who recognize the value of all genders, who were not stuck in a binary gender system, first of all, and who recognize that everyone, whatever their gender, has the possibility to lead and to give tremendously to the collective. You know, we have many, many examples in that that Honani herself writes about, particularly in her poetry. You know, her her poetry has been a huge part of her scholarship. Her poetry in particular, you know, really honors the role that various Akua Wahine have had on our people over time and, and continue to have. I think in in terms of her influence, she, you know, confronted a wider society in which in the 60s and seven, early 70s, you know, the Americanization of, of Hawaii. And then when she was living in on the continent, you know, there is a wider society that is shaped by patriarchal institutions. And she 100% challenged those things, but always lifted up, you know, women and women's leadership and challenge the violences of patriarchy in our own communities as well, and and still always supported both Kane and Wahine students of all genders. I've read your bio on University of Hawaii page. I know that you're a child of activists, and as a UH undergraduate in the 90s, you were surrounded by teachers and students participating in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. And I know that you're working on a book on Haunani K. Trask. What influence did she have on you? Um, I think there are so many of us who would say, so many of us are students, you know, who would say that we wouldn't be who we are today without her. She helped to not just lift up, but, you know, kind of uh, make very pa'a in our na'au that we had a place in the academy, that we were smart enough to 
get the highest advanced degrees. She made it a personal mission to reach out to her students, Hawaiian and other, you know, and that was huge. Just that message coming from someone who is so brilliant and so fearless was something that um, has changed so many lives. So many lives. She just really made it a personal mission to raise a next generation of leaders who were well-prepared, who could speak well, who could know their history, debate their history. You know, that was the kind of mentorship from a world-renowned professor. I mean, was just amazing and still is, I think, unique. That was UH political science professor Noelani Goodyear Kaopua talking with our Russell Subiono about the late Helmnani K. Trask. The influential Hawaiian sovereignty leader died Saturday at the age of 71. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. Honolulu Civil Beat's Reality Check Today features a story by military writer Kevin Nodell. He focuses on a veteran who discovered that his surgery was put off, but it wasn't a decision by the VA. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. So, yeah, it's one of those red tape stories that just gets you. Yeah, it's an unusual one. It's It's a story about somebody who's surgery seemed to have everything ready to go up until two days before it was supposed to happen. And where was that surgery supposed to take place? It was supposed to be at uh, Polymomi Medical Center. Um, the veteran, Patrick Malone, had a service-related knee injury that had been ailing him for quite a while since he'd gotten out of the military. He had gone to culinary school. He wasn't able to stay on his feet um, in, in kind of his... It's, changed his life and he said that he a direct quote from him was that he, I've had to plan my life around this surgery. And so what he was told then uh he couldn't get the surgery right away? Right. I mean in it, it's it's unusual too because the the story has changed a little bit though um I haven't really gotten a direct statement from um Hawaii Pacific Health other than that they can't discuss it, an individual's uh, case. First, what he says he was told is that um, he couldn't get it from there because the VA has been delinquent and paying health care bills at other hospitals um, on the mainland, though it, it doesn't sound like that's an issue here. But from what he was told at the time, it was a precaution in case uh, they didn't get their money and told him that he could come back with a different sort of insurance to get it covered. However, once the VA stepped in, what they were told was, well, it's because the specific um, implant that goes into the knee wasn't covered, um, which the VA has said to them and, to my surprise, told me directly very much on the record that um, everything was covered and there was no reason to delay it. Yeah. I, you know, and, you know, you've covered many stories about criticism about the VA. And, and I thought this issue of, you know, uh, uh, going to third party providers was going to alleviate some of the problems that the veterans were getting with care, but not so much in this case. Right. Uh, in the past, the VA has used um, contracted services from third party uh, 
people, but there's definitely been a push to expand that, uh, particularly out here with um, the VA Pacific healthcare system. It's it serves all the veterans, not just um, here in Hawaii, but also um, American Samoa, uh, Guam, CNMI. So th- there's a broad range and a lot of veterans that they need to reach, and they need to reach them with kind of limited facilities. So the idea is that by pushing out these other options that you get more care, but that only really works if these other providers do the care that they were contracted to do. So this is the one case where we've got problems with the VA paying bills on the mainland, but a, a local case here where things just got gummied up, I guess. Right, because the, it, to be clear, there doesn't seem to be any indicator that um, – the VA hasn't been paying its bills here in Hawaii. Um, I, I asked HBH directly, and they wouldn't address whether that's been an issue. Okay, but hopefully, though, now that the VA has said, no, this is covered, that things can just keep moving forward and he can get his surgery. Well, hopefully, and we'll we'll keep an eye on it. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, uh, really interesting uh a case to spotlight, and uh, we hope we don't hear about more of these. But thanks so much, Kevin. Uh, thank you. We have been talking with reporter Kevin Nodell with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. I still kind of struggle with depression on and off, and some days I thought, how am I going to even go do a program? So musician Christine Scheel volunteered her talents. She says being kind to others actually helped her. Just seeing how people responded to the music, it just changes everything. We'll explore the mutual benefits of kindness. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. There is a move underfoot to designate a national farewell for the last surviving Congressional Medal of Honor awardee from World War II. His name is Herschel Woody Williams, and he is 97 years old. State funerals aren't normally held for enlisted personnel. Williams was a corporal in the Marines. But a young girl named Rabel McNutt and her dad, Bill, had been traveling the country to drum up support to hold a state funeral, not just for him, but for all those who fought in World War II. It would be a final salute for members of what many call the greatest generation. We start off with Bill. From 1941... In 1945, 16 million Americans wore the uniform of our armed services. 473 men received the Congressional Medal of Honor, and only one is still living. Eight medals of honor were awarded to gallant, brave soldiers from Hawaii. The one that's left is Woody Williams, who is the youngest of 11 children from a dairy farm in West Virginia. And this final state funeral is not just for one man, but it's a final salute to all 16 million that wore the uniform in the Second World War. And so tell us about this campaign that you've got going, because you're going, what, you're reaching out across the country. We are. We have the wonderful Lynn Waters as our state chair in Hawaii, and then we have state chairs in 43 other states. And we are in a campaign without rules to convince the president, who has sole authority, to designate a state funeral in Washington for Woody Williams. Sixteen state legislatures have passed our resolution 
through their legislatures, and a dozen states have sent a congressional delegation letter to the White House. So we know we're getting close, and we're very confident that President Biden, who was born in the middle of World War II in 1942, we're very confident that when we get his attention, we'll designate this state funeral to Woody Williams. So, Rabel, jump in here. I understand that this was your idea. So, my godfather, Walter Ehlers, he was a Wilbur Sue and got the Medal of Honor. When he passed away, I think I was nine, and I'd never been to a military funeral. So, of course, my dad and I went to YouTube. As a little nine-year-old, I guess I didn't really understand the words that came out of my mouth, but I know I did say, why don't we have a state funeral for his friends? obviously, because my godfather died. And that's sort of how the idea originated a couple of years later. And then you and your dad have been on this campaign to basically get support across the country. Yeah, I mean, I've grown and matured with this nonprofit, and we have really tried our best to do everything possible to get this done. Every time I go to any gravesite, it just makes me sad to think that People lost their lives for, like, my freedom. If you could say something to President Biden to convince him to do this, to hold a state funeral for Woody, what would you say? I would say that people had to come before us, had to give their lives, had to risk everything for us to be where we are today. And we need to honor that because without them, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, we, we, we cherish our freedoms. And uh, it's important. So thank you for your effort and for your idea. Of course. I just love doing it in general. It's just one of the things that I really want to see happen and I put all my effort into. So you met with the governor. So you're hopeful. We're very hopeful. He gave us a gubernatorial letter that he's sending to the president. You know, you're dealing with a 97-year-old hero. And when he's gone, there is no other. And we must get the president to sign the designation. In 1962, two years before Douglas MacArthur died, President Kennedy signed the designation for him to have a state funeral. Our country has had many state funerals for generals, but never one for an enlisted man. And Woody Williams was a corporal. And have you talked to Woody? What does he think about this? What does he think about all this? Well, we are blessed that one of Woody's grandchildren is our state chair in Kentucky, and another one of his grandchildren, Brent Casey, is our state chair in Kentucky. And Woody simply says that a state funeral is part of history that can never be erased. And that's why it's so important, not for him to have the state funeral, but for it to be used as a final salute to the greatest generation. And today, 35 million American families, tens of thousands of them in Hawaii, claim a relative, a grandfather, an uncle, an aunt, who wore the uniform in World War II. So that's an enormous number of people, 35 million families that are so proud of their forefathers wearing the uniform, and we don't want to let any one of them down. We've been hearing from Bill and Rabel McNutt, who are behind the campaign to get a state funeral for the last surviving Congressional Medal of Honor awardee, Herschel Woody Williams. We talked to Bill and Rabel last week as they were in Honolulu. The next three states on their list are Georgia, Oregon, and Vermont. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Is the long-lived Hubble telescope on its last legs? Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares this update in your weekly Stargazer Report. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also what we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, which can be seen in the west after sunset. 
Venus will be setting at around 8.44pm. The moon will appear as a waning crescent this week, meaning the sky will be nice and dark. Perfect for stargazing. And you've got an update on the uh, ongoing repairs of the Hubble Space Telescope? Yes, NASA is continuing to attempt repairs of the 30-year-old Hubble Space Telescope, which has been out of service since mid-June following a failure of its payload computer. This computer is responsible for the telescope's instruments. This serious failure has astronomers and Hubble fans alike wondering if this is the final curtain call for this giant of space-based astronomy. NASA, however, is not content to simply let the telescope go quietly into the night, and they have been busy slowly restoring telescope systems in order to hopefully bring the aging telescope back online. And Chris, are you thinking because it's taken so long, this could be the end for Hubble, or is it just kind of complicated stuff? It is incredibly complicated. This slow repair is actually a deliberate approach taken by engineers so that basically they don't break anything during the repair process. You're saying priority safety, not speed, and safety in terms of not screwing that thing up because it's real old. Correct. And this is something that both ground-based and space-based telescope engineers have in common. A careful, precise, and meticulous approach to every detail is what is needed to ensure success. What are you thinking the chances are they're going to keep this thing going? I think they are pretty good, although it's probably going to be weeks before we see any major improvement, which is fine because the spacecraft is in no danger otherwise. And this thing was shot up there when, and it only had a limited shelf life, so it's already been like a huge bonus all this extra time, right? Exactly. It's over 30 years old, and it continues to enable cutting-edge science, even at its grand old age. And it will continue to do so for many years to come once it's back up and running. Just because something is old doesn't mean you throw it away. What was the original shelf life? It was only supposed to last about 10 to 20 years. A lot of bonus time, and we'll be looking for uh, your hopefully positive update on its future. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and we'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Earlier, we asked our listeners for the Hawaiian name of the night-blooming cirrus. It's often referred to in such romantic terms as the queen of the night or the flower of the moon in songs and poems. That might seem strange if you were to pass by this cactus vine on an average day, but if you come across the night-blooming cirrus on a warm summer night, you might just see a magnificent white flower, which will wilt by the next day. One of the best places to catch a glimpse of this floral showstopper is along Wilder, Wilder Avenue and Punahou Street in Honolulu, where a hedge of the cactus vine hems the Punahou cactus, uh, campus. This hedge actually predates the school. Sybil Bingham, wife of Reverend Hiram Bingham, planted the cactus along the wall bordering Punahou Street in the late 1830s. The hedge has been expanded and maintained for nearly 200 years and is almost a thousand feet long. The history inspired the plant's Hawaiian name, Panini o Kapuna Ho, or Punaho Cactus. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We had no winners. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is considering downlisting the Hawaiian stilt from endangered to threatened under the Endangered Species Act. It would be the third third Hawaiian bird to be reclassified in the past few years after the nene in 2019 and the Hawaiian hawk just last year. The public comment period is open until July 23rd. But is this downlisting good news or bad news? The conversation Savannah Harriman Pope spoke to Megan Lott of the Fish and Wildlife Service to learn more. Here's Megan. When we downlist a species from endangered to threatened, we include something that's called a 4D rule, which establishes species-specific protections as a result of that downlisting. In the case of the IO, we included all the same protections that an endangered species has but we made exceptions so that actions such as predator control or habitat management that are beneficial to the species but could result in take or harm to some individuals are allowed without a permit. 
because they enhance the overall status or condition of the species. So for Io, its protections are almost the same as, as if it was endangered. Can you clarify that a little bit? You're saying that with it listed specifically as threatened, you theoretically could take or do harm to an individual Io? So if you are managing its habitat or doing predator control for the benefit of the stilt, if something happens and a bird gets caught in a trap or doing vegetation management, there's accidental take or harm to an individual. Normally we permit those types of activities and those those activities, because they are for the benefit of the species, don't need to be permitted. Mm, So it gives you more flexibility to make modifications for the environment in which the IO lives, assuming that there's not gonna be large scale detriment to the species. Yes. So when we move to downlist a species to threatened, we're confident that the species is making progress towards recovery. And that threatened status ensures that we're still, that it is still legally protected under the Endangered Species Act, and that we are still monitoring its status. So we're still keeping tabs on it and and making sure that it isn't moving back into that endangered category. Hmm. Does that review process happen at specific increments? Or are you, or is there a certain threshold at which you say we need to revisit this downlisting and potentially bring the classification back up to endangered? We are required under the Endangered Species Act to do a five-year review for all of our listed species. So every five years, we evaluate where a species is in terms of its population status and threats. And the population of the Hawaiian stilt has increased significantly from its low point of 200 birds in 1941. What is the most recent population estimate for the IO? Yeah, so the the most comprehensive data set we have for the statewide population is from the state of Hawaii's biannual water bird surveys, which are held in January and August of each year. And these surveys give us a snapshot or an index of the population. The most recent data we have available to us from that survey goes until 2017. And from that data set from 2004 to 2017, the number of birds counted during the survey ranged between 1,500 and 2,000 individuals. So in 2021, it's probable that the number of birds today is somewhere within that range. And we are working on getting more up-to-date information from the state currently. Do you have an expectation of of when you might get more updated information or confirmation of those population numbers? We got data for the 2018 and 2019 surveys and we're in the process right now of um, summarizing it and and standardizing it with the other data set. If those data sets from 2018 and 2019 were to show a market decline in the population, it is not stable or it is not increasing, would this review period for downlisting the IOB off the table? We would make the most sound decision based on the science available to us. So if there were a market decline, then we would have to reevaluate our decision. But in our decision, we take into consideration other things like the management status of its habitat, other threats to to the species. We don't base the decision solely on the population estimate. Right. I I saw the different criteria that was listed in the second revised draft of the recovery plan for Hawaiian water birds, which sets quite a few criteria that need to be met in order for this process to be considered. The population threshold in that is 2,000 birds, which you say in the past couple of data sets, IO has approached or hit. How was that particular number decided upon as a stable or robust enough population for this downlisting to be considered? Yeah, when we develop down or delisting criteria, we use the best available science that we have at the time. And we create the criteria as targets, but we also recognize that we're working with a living dynamic system 
So our criteria are our best estimate of what it will take to recover the species. This plan was finalized in 2011, and I wasn't part of the team that developed the recovery criteria for the IO, so I can't speak to the exact decisions that they made. However, I can tell you that a recent population model demonstrated that at a population size of 2,000 birds, the habitat for IO is at carrying capacity, meaning that we can't grow the population much past 2,000 birds without creating additional habitat. So the target that the team, that team developed was pretty accurate. As we're talking, you've said that, of course, the people who are making this decision are evaluating all data available to them and have been working closely with the species for a long time. What is the benefit of a public comment? How can the public actually impact this decision or what might they say that would be an important consideration for the Fish and Wildlife Service in its decision-making process? We are a science-based organization, so we, we look to science, but we also value the public's input um, because they are, they belong to the people, they belong to, to the public, and, and we want them to be around for everyone to enjoy. The IO is an amazing bird, and it's one of the rare opportunities for people in Hawaii to see a native bird. Many of our native birds are up in the forest and, and aren't accessible. So I think that a lot of people, with changing the status, the, the endangered species status from threatened to endangered, people are concerned about that. When we make that decision to, to downlist to threatened it is actually a success. It is, is showing that we are making progress towards improving the status of a species. That was Megan Lott, Conservation and Restoration Team Manager with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. There is a public hearing on the downlisting of the I.O. tomorrow at 5 p.m. You can find more information on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we plan to hear from Governor David Ige about his veto list. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling your talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also send, uh, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.